Hi, everyone. Welcome to the At Hurst Mom podcast. I'm Lauren Rose, and today we're going to talk about children's sleep habits. My guest today is Leanne Lattice. She's a sleep coach who works with young children to improve their sleep habits. So uh, first, Leanne, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, thanks, Lauren, for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Uh, I've been sleep coaching for a little over 10 years. And um, in a nutshell, what I do is I, I actually work with the parents of the children um, and I coach them through various applications, tools, strategies to help their children sleep better. And I can um, share a little bit of you know my background and how I got here because it's kind of a strange, unique job that I do, but um, you know, it's something that you kind of fall into through your own experiences. And so um, it, my story is that we have two boys that are now teenagers. However, when they were little, we had several experiences of our own that kind of led me down this path. Before I had children, I was in the marketing industry. So very different from what I do now is serving families. And when my first son was born, you know, I was a mom who had read all the books, you know, took all the classes, thought I was fully prepared. And um, he came along and really threw me for a loop, which um, made a very difficult maternity leave for me. And that is when I had discovered that I had some postpartum anxiety that I was dealing with. It was a very difficult time. And um, as, uh, as a result of that, when I became pregnant with my second son, I knew that I needed to find a better way to get through, you know, those first couple of months. So I hired a postpartum doula, which will segue into how I became a sleep coach, but a postpartum doula, you know, is someone who really comes into the home in those first weeks with a new baby, helps parents, um, get settled, get to know their baby, you know, I would help them meet their needs of getting sleep and getting that, you know, that shower that they're um, not able to get as easily anymore, and then just help them with baby care. And um, as a result of that, my second maternity leave with child number two was much more manageable for me, still dealing with anxiety um, and uncomfortable, you know, and then um, as a result of that, I left my marketing career, became a postpartum doula and a lactation specialist, thinking that that's where I was headed, you know, with my career, um, which got off to a really great start. But in the process of doing that, not only were we having sleep issues with our son, I was also realizing that, gosh, you know, everything that comes along with being a new parent whether it's, you know, learning how to feed them and how to, you know, fulfill their nutrition needs or how to comfort them. Sleep was probably the second most common thing that I would get questions about because we keep thinking that, oh, babies just sleep naturally. You know, they, they know how to sleep and um, it's not true, you know, and the saying that, you know, sleep like a baby, well, babies actually don't sleep very restfully. So that one always kind of makes me laugh. But um, as I was kind of developing my business as a postpartum doula, I really started to see the need for sleep, whether it was education, help, you know, tools and tactics. And we were struggling with the same thing in our own family. At that time, my son was three years old and was still not able to sleep through the night on his own. Um, and the toll that it took on me as a mom, you know, was quite drastic. It affected my ability to be productive during the day. Um, it took away my energy. It, it did not uh, make it possible for me to be the mom that I always pictured I would be. It affected our marriage, you know, the, the strength of our marriage, like everything was affected because we had a child that wasn't sleeping. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I discovered sleep coaching as a profession and went through um, a lengthy certification process to become a sleep consultant or a sleep coach. And now, you know, for the past 10 years, that's been my sole focus is helping parents get kids to sleep better. Primarily, I mean, you know, we want our babies to sleep good, but we also know that if our baby isn't sleeping, we aren't sleeping. <laughs> and um, so once we can get a baby or a child sleeping, you know, the whole family benefits, right? Because 
now everyone's getting what they need so that they can function at their best during the day. That is so interesting. So can you tell us why sleep is so important? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, if you do any research or reading on the effects of sleep on our health, you know, you'll, you'll find that it, like I was just sharing in my own experience, it really affects every aspect of your life. Anyway, you know, anything from your physical health with energy, um, just staying healthy, you know, having a strong immune system because you're getting the sleep and the rest that your body needs um, to mental health. You know, I, as I briefly shared, I have anxiety and, and we know that with um, mental health conditions like anxiety and others, if we're not getting the sleep we need, it only makes things like anxiety um, harder to manage and and bigger, you know, so it obviously has a, a huge impact on mental health. Um, and for our kids too, as they are growing and developing so quickly, physically, mentally, developmentally, if they aren't getting the sleep that they need, those things can be hindered. You know, maybe they don't develop at the, at the rate or the stage that we would expect them to. Um, maybe they aren't waking up happy in the morning, which makes mornings difficult for families. And behaviorally, you know, you think about a two or three or four-year-old who isn't getting the sleep that they need, boy, it is tough getting through the day for them because they just don't have the coping skills, um, you know, that they need throughout their day if they're not getting the sleep that they need at night. Absolutely. So it's hard enough for people living with chronic pain and illness to get a good, good night's rest. A lot of us are, you know, in pain, which wakes us up or keeps us from being able to go to sleep. So when our children are waking up through the night, it's really impossible. What can we do to help our young kids sleep better? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a big question. Um, and so maybe I can, you know, provide some, some tips and su suggestions that are easy to implement right away. Um, and, you know, you're right. If, if you are living with something like chronic pain and you're already being woken up or your sleep is being disturbed throughout the night several times, if you add on top of that, a child who is also waking up several times a night, I'm not sure how it's possible to get restful sleep, you know, sleep where you're getting through a couple of, of deep sleep cycles to feel well. Um, so if you are someone that is already dealing with chronic pain that's affecting your sleep, the last thing you need is to have a baby or a child who's also waking up at night when it's not necessary. You know, I want to clarify that if you have a four-month-old baby maybe they aren't ready to sleep all the way through the night. Maybe they still need a feeding in the middle of the night. You know, we're not going to ignore actual needs or necessities that a child might need overnight. But once you have a baby that's older or a toddler or, you know, or even older children, they should be able to make it through the night independently on their own without really requiring much from their parents outside of something like a bad dream, you know, a storm outside that startled them, of course, things like that. We always want to be there to comfort them and help them through that. Um, some of the challenges or the, the common challenges that I see around sleep at night are things like, you know, a baby or an older child who requires extra help to fall asleep you know, maybe that's something like, you know, let's take um, a nine month old baby who um, needs to be extensively rocked to sleep and held by a parent, right? And the moment you lay them in their crib, they wake up and you have to start the whole process over again. Been there. <laughs> yeah, I think we all have, right? And, you know, I mean, some of that's natural, but when you get to the point of having an older infant, they should be able to learn the skills of initiating their own sleep and then making it through the night without your help. So um, the common areas of, of trouble would be initially falling asleep at bedtime where maybe a child needs extra support, extra help to fall asleep. 
And sometimes that's okay. You know, maybe sometimes you just need to rock your baby for a little bit. They and then you can put them in the crib and they can make it through the night. But in most cases, what happens is if you have a child that requires assistance at bedtime, they're also going to wake up in the middle of the night requiring assistance over and over, right? Because they've learned over time that, oh, the way I get to sleep is through X, Y, or Z. So if I get rocked to sleep at bedtime, chances are when I wake up in the night after finishing a sleep cycle, I'm going to seek out that same rocking in order to get back to sleep throughout the night. So it becomes this, you know, extensive cycle of assistance throughout the night. So one thing I would um, suggest to listeners or parents in general is think about um, what is your child requiring in order to fall asleep at bedtime. It all starts with bedtime. The ideal situation is that you can come up with a really nice, enjoyable bedtime routine that everybody enjoys, but at the end of the routine, you're able to say goodnight to your child, put them in their crib or their bed, awake and separate, right? And then your child can take it from there to initiate their own sleep. So the first thing I would suggest is just take a really close look at what happens at bedtime. And is there anything going on right now that you may feel like they're relying on this too much, right? They're relying on rocking or feeding to sleep or, um, um, you know, being held, um, things like that, right? To the point that it's becoming an issue for the parents to sustain. Um, the other thing you want to take a look at is, you know, there are very specific sleep guidelines that are provided to us um, based on the age of your child. So, for example, if you have a one-year-old, we know that a one-year-old should be getting somewhere between 12 and 14 hours of sleep in a 24-hour period. We also know that they can really only tolerate let's say it depends if they're doing one nap or two naps at one year of age, but let's say they're on a one nap schedule already. We know they can only tolerate about five hours of being awake. Mm -hmm. So looking at, do you have the timing, right? You know, if you're trying to put your one-year-old to bed after three hours of being awake, they may not be ready. So what are they going to do? They're going to fight you. They're going to stall. They're going to you know, um, basically show you that their body just isn't ready to settle. Um, alternatively, if you have a one-year-old and you're keeping them up for six hours before bedtime, now you have an overtired child who is also going to have a difficult time settling and they're going to require more from you. So really, you know, understanding sleep guidelines for your specific child's age and ensuring that your timing naps and bedtime appropriate for their age. Well, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. I wish I'd known that when my daughter was a baby. <laughs> yeah, there's a really good resource. It's the National Sleep Foundation that mm -hmm. you can Google and look up and they have all their sleep guidelines right there on their website. So it's a standard, you know, set of guidelines that all of us in the sleep industry will use. That's great. Mm -hmm. So what should our goal be with regards to our kids sleep? In other words, like how will we know when we're successful? Great question. So, um, you know, referring back to those sleep guidelines, number one would be, is my child getting the sleep that they need based on the recommended guidelines? Um, so if you take that one-year-old as an example, again, you know, 11, 11 or 12 to 14 hours of sleep in a 24-hour period, Usually that breaks down to about 11 to 12 hours overnight, and then another one to three hours of napping during the day. So if you understand the guidelines and you can say, yeah, my child is, you know, falling asleep at 7.30 at night and waking up at seven the next morning, they're getting 11 and a half hours of sleep. You know, they're, they're good to go. They're meeting the requirements. Um, I would also look at how is your child behaving throughout the day, kind of like what I alluded to earlier, if they wake up happy and content, we can assume that they've gotten the sleep that they need overnight. If they can make it through the day without getting 
super fussy or, um, you know, I'm thinking about older kiddos who maybe start to have some behavioral issues because of not getting enough sleep, you know, that would be an indication as to whether or not your child is getting what they need and if you're successful. I would also say too, that after about six months of age, a child really shouldn't require any assistance to make it through the night. So if you have a child that's six months or older, you know, on track with development and weight gain and very healthy, um, and if they're waking up several times a night, that would be an indication to you that there's something else going on that could be addressed or could be improved so that they can make it through the night. So, you know, just looking at the quality of sleep, the quantity of sleep, and then I would add the independence of sleep once they're beyond that six month age would be really clear indications as to how your child is doing with sleep. Okay, that's, that's great. Know what success is supposed to look like. Right. So what about the age old question of crying it out? Do we, are we supposed to let our kids cry it out? Because that did not work for me and my child. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. And she learned, like, I mean, she would cry and cry and cry. I wouldn't stop until I went in there. I mean, I timed it. I tried all sorts of stuff and it was just me just, you know, in the other room sobbing and feeling sad for my child who obviously needs something, whether right. that's attention or love or comfort. I don't know, but sh right. should we let our kids cry it out? Yeah, it's a good, it is a um, age old question and one that I get yeah. all the time. I do like to first start with what is my, what's the definition that I'm working from when we use the term cry it out or crying it out? Um, because I have learned over the years that parents kind of have varying ideas of what that means. Yeah. It's become a really common term. Right. And so it almost becomes a blanket term for sleep training. So I like to clarify that a little bit. And then I can talk about is it okay? Is it not okay? What do we do about the crying? You know, um, is is there a point where it's too much? You know, mm -hmm. um, so the, the term cry it out originally um came from the sleep training method called extinction. Extinction is a pretty assertive or aggressive sleep training method. It's very hands-off. It basically means that you, you know, you take your child through a bedtime routine, you put them in the crib or in their bed, you leave the room and you essentially don't come back until morning, right? So they are left to their own devices to try and figure out what's going on. What am I supposed to do? How do I get to sleep? And as the parent, you aren't really intervening at all. That's what true extinction is. And the reason that the cry it out term became so popular to that is because you, right, you're literally leaving the room. You're not coming back for comfort or assistance or check-ins or anything. And you are leaving them to cry it out for the whole night. That's where it originated. But what I like to um, explain is that there is really a spectrum of sleep training approaches or um, you know, ways that we can reshape sleep habits for children. If I look at a spectrum of sleep training approaches, extinction would be at, you know, one end of the spectrum. Yeah. And then at the other end of the spectrum would be sleep training methods that are very hands-on. They're considered more gentle in nature. As the parent, you're more involved, you can comfort, you can reassure, you can even stay in the room with your child as they're falling asleep if you do that in an effective way, you know, so that they're still learning the skills on their own. And then there are, of course, several approaches in between those two extremes. I will say, though, that <clears throat> when it comes to the whole topic of crying, in my opinion and in my experience, any type of sleep training that you decide to use will result in some crying, right? And if you think about that, um, it makes sense because if you're asking a child of any age to make changes or accept changes that you're trying to implement for them, yeah. but maybe in, you know, in their mind, things are going just fine. So why do we need to change anything? They're going to react, right? They're going to react to that in the same way that we as adults might react to something that 
we want to resist or we don't want to change or we don't believe needs to change. And of course, you know, especially with children who um, haven't built up their vocabulary yet, crying is, of course, the way that they communicate. So I spend a lot of time talking with my clients about what does the crying mean? Um, we have a scale that we use that interprets the cries. I try to set expectations for them around, uh, you know, night one, you're introducing several changes to your child. They're not going to be happy about it. They're going to express that through crying. How do we know that the crying is okay? Well, have you met all of their other needs? Did you put them to bed with, you know, a full tummy? Um, did you confirm that they're not sick? Or as far as you know, they're not teething. Um, have you spent quality time with them, you know, giving them affection and love and play and development and bonding time? Um, did you put them to bed with a clean diaper and warm pajamas? You know, so essentially like going through this checklist of, have I done everything for my child that I know they need in order to sleep? And if so, then it can be a little bit easier to kind of think through the reason behind the crying. Oh, they're probably really mad right now because I took away their pacifier and they want, you know, they're used to having something to suck on and now they have nothing to suck on. So they're frustrated. Mm -hmm. Or I put them in the crib without rocking them to sleep. Well, they're trying to adjust to not having that motion as a way to fall asleep. So we talk a lot about um, why the crying happens. How do we interpret the cry? Um, and when do we intervene? So depending on the sleep training method that I recommend for a family will also dictate how involved a parent is. So I won't go into, you know, all of those, right, um, yeah. you know, options, but you know, there are, there are ways around that. And I will say to Lauren that, you know, when you explain your experience of trying to do sleep training and you're outside of the bedroom crying yourself, right. That's, pretty common because I think as parents, we're just naturally triggered by hearing our child, whether it's distress or unhappy or sad or frustrated or scared or mad or whatever, um, our natural instinct, especially as mothers, is to respond and to try to take mm -hmm. care of that. And oftentimes in sleep training, um, there's a strategic way around how you respond. So it's hard, right? Because you're kind of fighting yeah. this emotional response to the cry and then your logical response to following through on effective sleep training. Right. Yeah, same with any kind of change or discipline, even as she gets older. Right. Um, so with, with infants, is there anything that we can do to reduce SIDS or infant suffocation? Because I know that that's tragic and a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. It is a really big deal. Um, the, the, what am I trying to say? The chance of SIDS peaks around the two to four month age range for babies. So I think it's helpful to know that the older they get, the less likely the chance of SIDS will happen. Um, and, you know, SIDS is a, um, a condition that happens around sleep. And of course it can be very, very detrimental and, and pretty traumatic. Um, there's been lots of research over the years about why SIDS happens with certain babies and not others. And the last research that I have read is saying that, you know, they're learning more about why it happens, but they still don't yet have all the answers. But what we do know is that one really important way to reduce the chance of SIDS is through safe sleep recommendations. And um, oh, I think it was 19, you'll have to fact check me on the year. I think it's 1984, 1985, where the back to sleep campaign was launched. Prior to that, we were all sleeping our babies on their bellies when they were little. And they found that just by putting a baby down on their back instead of their belly reduced SIDS by over 50%, which, oh. my gosh, right? I mean, any change that you can make that's 50% improvement, I think that's amazing. So that was the kind of the first thing that happened is, all right, let's start putting our babies on their backs 
And then when they get old enough and strong enough to learn how to roll from back to belly and belly to back, at that point, we know that it's okay to allow them to sleep on their belly, but we want them to get there on their own okay. instead of putting them there. So that's one thing that you can do to make sure that your baby is safe. And then um, there's a whole host of other things, things like we always want our babies to sleep in their own sleep space. So um, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends room sharing up to 12 months of age. Room sharing is different from bed sharing. So they do not recommend bed sharing, which would be, you know, bringing your young baby into your bed with you. But instead, you could have your baby in the same bedroom with you just in their own space, whether that's a crib or a bassinet pack and play, co-sleeper, or a, like a sidecar, you know, sleeper, things like that. So independent sleep space, but room sharing. Nothing else goes into that sleep space except a baby and a fitted sheet. So before 12 months of age, nothing else should be in that crib or that bassinet. So that means, you know, no blankets or pillows, no stuffed animals, um, no sleep positioners, um, you know, just, just a clean space with a fitted sheet. So nothing is loose. And then your baby dressed appropriately. Those are the things that I would really focus on around, you know, the easy things that you can do, right. To avoid having to go through that. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So with a little bit older children, what do we do? Um, say, if they say that they're afraid of the dark, I mean, my, my daughter, she never was afraid of the dark until she was about six years old. I think her friend showed her something scary and now she's afraid of the dark. And we've talked about even recently, is it really the dark you're afraid of or what might be in the dark? Because the dark is just the absence of light, right? You're, you're afraid of what might be there, what might happen, but she's almost 10 and still has to have nightlights. So what do we do with, with young kids and even older kids? Yeah, I really like the way you describe that, that darkness is not scary in and of itself. It's just the absence of light. I love that. I might, I might have to steal that from you. <laughs> sure. um, so, you know, I'll talk first about the, the fears that develop at night, fear of the dark being one of the most common fears that kids develop. We usually start to see that develop around two and a half, three, three and a half it coincides with the same timing where imagination is, you know, going crazy. Um, our kids are, are, you know, the world that they live in is getting bigger in their mind. They're being exposed to more things. And to your point, they might, you know, read a book with their parents or see a show or see something out in public that that's what becomes scary. And then when they're in the bedroom at night and it's dark, that's what they start to think about. But that's usually when we start to see those fears develop, and then they absolutely can continue through many, many years thereafter. So you're not alone with that. I think, you know, one thing, especially with older children who can verbalize what they're afraid of, is to get them talking about it and to try to try to pinpoint what is it? Is it just that you can't see what's happening in your room? Is it that you watched a show that maybe us as the parent felt was fine and not scary, but to them, there was something scary in that. Um, I've had kids who have started to develop fears around a holiday, like Halloween, of course, right? Because there can be scary things at Halloween. Um, I had a client several years ago where their daughter was just deathly afraid of pumpkins, right? You know, happy pumpkins, scary pumpkins, it didn't matter. Like she was really afraid of pumpkins. So we had to try and find ways to reintroduce pumpkins in a positive, friendly way, you know, through books, through exposure that felt safe, you know, things like that. Um, the, the, the darkness in and of itself is a little bit of a tricky one because we know that research shows children and adults alike sleep better in a pitch black environment, right? And the reason that is, is because we have a hormone called melatonin and we know that melatonin is, um, the production of melatonin gets triggered by darkness or by not being exposed to light. 
number one would be natural light. Number two would be any kind of artificial light that might be in the room. So that's why um, researchers will say that, you know, to get the best sleep for your child, we want a pitch black room, no daylight coming in, no night lights, no hallway lights, no nothing. And I think scientifically it makes sense because it shuts down the hormone. However, kids do have a tendency to be afraid of the dark. So um, what I tend to recommend to my clients is let's try a dark room first and see if we can work through what is the actual fear? Is there a way that we can address that fear without adding light? If that doesn't work and they truly just don't like the darkness, then we can add in a nightlight. Um, the current recommendation is a red light, which um, tends to have you know lesser effect on melatonin production. And then I will always recommend, let's make sure we get a, a nightlight that's dim and that maybe we even tuck behind a piece of furniture. So like if you have, you know, a dresser in the bedroom, plug it in behind the dresser so that it's not as bright, but it provides just a little bit of light in the room. And let's see if that takes away the fear and your child still sleeps well. I have found in my experience, and I'm going to go a little bit against the research for just a second, um, that I don't find nightlights to be the main culprit of poor sleep. I think it's all the other stuff that I've mentioned, you know, things like sleep props that kids are relying on, routines, timing, schedule, things like that. I don't find nightlights to be, you know, the number one culprit of poor overnight sleep. So I'm okay recommending nightlights if we've tried other things and, you know, we're still not getting to where we want to be kind of funny about my daughter is we've got nightlights in her room but she knows she sleeps better without all that light so she wears a sleeping mask on her face <laughs> so she's still she's still not getting the light but at least she knows the light's there I guess in case she wakes up in the middle of, I don't know maybe it's a comfort thing for her yeah I I think that's actually quite amazing yeah that just the thought of having the comfort of the light if she needs it is enough for her I think that's yeah. great my my son um used to have, we used to use a sleep clock, which is a, a great tool for teaching kiddos, you know, when it's still time to sleep and when it's time to get up for the day. And so he had for years had a sleep clock that did have light. And then as he got older into middle school, he wanted the bathroom light on down the hallway, right? And so we would turn the bathroom light on, we'd crack the door a couple of inches and it was just enough light for him to still feel comfortable, but also sleep well. A couple of years ago, he said, I think I want to turn that light off. And I said, okay, great. Cause we would love to have it <laughs> off too. And in hindsight now, when he looks back and we have that light on still like at bedtime, he'll be like, I can't believe I was able to sleep with that light on. That is so bright. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time it was comfort. Now he understands right. that, you know, I'm going to sleep better if, if I'm in darkness. It's very interesting. Right. Yeah. That's funny. Mm -hmm. So another issue that a lot of us have, what about kids stalling at bedtime. Oh, I need a cup of water. Oh, I'm not sleepy. Oh, whatever it is. Right. 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 Stall tactics are so common again, around <laughs> that three year, um, three years of age is when we really start to see that kick in even as early as two years, you know, it's when kids start to figure out that if they can come up with a reason, especially at bedtime, to delay either having to get into bed, or I think in a lot of cases, it's their way of delaying the separation from their parents. Um, if we start to recognize that that's what's going on, then we can put some tools and some boundaries in place to minimize stall tactics, but they are very, very common and developmentally normal for a child to kind of test that out and see if, you know, see if it works. Um, some really common sleep um, stall tactics, like you mentioned, are things like, I need a drink of water, I need one more hug, can we read one more book, I have to go potty, um, I have to say goodnight to the dog, you know, and, and the list goes on and on and kids can get quite creative. The key for parents is to recognize that a stall tactic is happening, because I think sometimes we can be blindsided, you know, like if yeah. my child says, you know, can I have one more hug? Well, what mother isn't going to be like, of course you can have another hug, you know? 
of course, I'll give you hugs all day long. Um, so it can kind of sneak up on you sometimes. But once you start to recognize a pattern of every night, they're asking for the same thing, or could even be different things every night, but it's repetitive, you know, and maybe they're even calling you back two, three, four, mm -hmm. 10 times a night at bedtime. Now you've got a stall tactic, you know, strategy in place that your child is using. Um, you can absolutely put some tools into place to help minimize that. I'll, I'll go back first to the timing again. If you have a child that's overtired, they're more likely to stall. They're more likely to um, test the boundaries. They're more likely to protest bedtime. So just making sure again, that you've got the right bedtime in place so that you're trying to put your child to bed in the window of time that's gonna work the easiest for them, you know, to cooperate and go along with it. Um, another tool that you can use that is really helpful for kids is coming up, well, number one, having a very consistent bedtime routine so that night after night, it's very predictable. Here's what we do before bedtime. Here's the order in which the, you know, the steps happen. And when we're done with all those steps, we say goodnight, you know, mom or dad or, you know, whoever leaves the room and we see you again in the morning. So consistency around a bedtime routine um, that's in place is really helpful. And then on top of that, you might even find it helpful to create a bedtime routine chart, you know, young, um, you know, older toddlers, young preschoolers love charts and they love yeah. reward systems. Usually they work pretty effectively. So you can create a visual bedtime chart that says, here are the five steps that we do at bedtime. We take a bath, we get on our pajamas, we brush our teeth, we read three books, and then we go to bed. And you put that chart and, you know, a visual chart is nice. So maybe you've got pictures of each step along the way. And then your child can check off each step throughout the bedtime routine. So they feel a sense of accomplishment. It also helps to keep them on track so they don't get diverted to more stall tactics. Um, using that chart to walk them through bedtime and even getting really specific. For example, if your child's stall tactic is, I want to read another book and you can't seem to figure out how to put an end to the number of books that are read at bedtime, you can specify on that chart, we read three books at bedtime or we read for 10 minutes at bedtime and we're going to set a timer you know, having boundaries around um, or, you know, quantifying what's in the bedtime routine can help. And then if they say, if you tell them we read three books at bedtime and they say, but I want another book and you can say, I'm sorry, honey, we already read our three books for the night. There's no more books tonight. Why don't we pick out a book that we can read in the morning when you wake up? Right. And, and, in most cases, the child will not easily accept that as an alternative solution, but that's where the hard work comes in is for the parent to say, I'm sorry, there's no more books tonight. And no matter what your child says or what they try to do to get more out of it, you have to, you know, kind of dig your heels in and say, there's no more books tonight. Right. right. So those kinds of things will help um, minimize stall tactics. One last thing would be just minimize distractions in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. So once you're in the bedroom for bedtime, having toys put away for the night, you know, no other extra stuff is laying around that can um, grab your child's attention to stall. Okay. So let's say we've got our kids on a pretty good sleep routine. They're doing well and we need to put them in daycare. How can we transition our child into daycare without ruining these good sleep habits? Yeah, great question. And of course it will look a little bit different for each family, depending on the age of the child and how long they've been at home before they transition into daycare. In my experience, both with our own children and with all the families that I've worked with, I have started to tell parents that no matter the age of your child or what kind of daycare they're going into, expect a week or two of transition time, you know, and in that transition time, you can expect things like a little bit of disrupted sleep at night. Um, your child might come home more tired at the end of the day because they're just, they're taking in so much new stimulation. You know, there's right. 
new caregivers, new kids, uh, probably a more structured routine than what they're used to at home. So they're working hard to take all that in and process that. So oftentimes um, babies and kids will come home more tired and maybe even more sensitive at the end of the day. So you might have more meltdowns, you might have increased clinginess, you know, so the first week or two just kind of you know, play through that and, and let everybody adjust to it. Um, if you're sending your child to daycare and they already have a really nice set schedule for sleep, I would have a conversation ahead of time with the daycare provider to understand what's the daycare's schedule. And if that daycare schedule is very different from what you've been doing at home, then you can use a couple of weeks leading up to the transition to daycare to adjust your child's schedule so that when they get to daycare, now at least you're closer to what they're gonna be doing going forward. Um, but also in the, in the same breath, I would say, um, the daycare is there to meet your needs for your child. So if you have, um, I'm trying to think of a good example of where we see this. Let's say you're sending your 10 month old to daycare for the first time. And at home, you've had your 10-month-old on a two-nap schedule, but at the daycare, they start a one-nap schedule at 10 months of age. I've seen that quite often, actually. And that can be difficult because your child, you know, your baby isn't used to having to be awake that long before they get to take a nap. So in cases like that, I will, you know, suggest to the parents, you need to have a conversation with the daycare provider, whether it's the classroom teacher or the director of the daycare or the owner of the daycare to say, what are my options so that I can keep my baby on a two nap schedule for just a little bit longer, you know, so that they can slowly adjust into a new schedule. And in a lot of cases, I have found daycares can be flexible enough to meet that need, but just lots of open communication around what is your child used to at home and how can we mimic that or still follow through on that at daycare? And sometimes you can't, you know, sometimes you just can't. And then your child will just have to, you know, be given some time to adjust to the new, the new daycare situation. But it's definitely a transition. Parents get very nervous about, you know, sending their child to daycare. Um, but I think if you go into it, having a clear understanding of what works for your child, what are the appropriate guidelines for your child's sleep? And then comparing that to the daycare, you know, at least you're going in with the right knowledge to make sure that your child is getting their needs met. Yeah, those are great points. So at home, um, I'm mainly the person that's in charge of putting our daughter to bed. My husband will step in if I'm um, not feeling well, I don't have enough energy. Is there a right or a wrong approach to which caregiver does the bedtime tasks? I don't think there's a right or a wrong approach, especially if you, you know, certain families have limitations around, you know, who's available at bedtime, who's mm -hmm. home at bedtime. Maybe there's one parent that travels for work or works um, a night shift or something, right? So you have to work around that first. Um, but putting that aside, I will most, most often recommend that I want parents to get to a place where there's a rotation of sorts. So whether it's parents are alternating every other night or every couple of nights, or maybe you have a set schedule where, you know, one parent does Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the other parent does Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever. Um, I think allowing your child to experience or enjoy bedtime with each parent separately is really good for everybody involved. You know, number one, it helps your child be a little bit more flexible with who's going to put them to bed. So that makes life easier for the parents. And then that also spills over into, let's say you have a grandparent or a babysitter or, you know, a neighbor or a cousin or whoever that needs to come and put your child to bed, they will be more flexible and accepting of that. Um, I would also say that kids do tend to develop a preference. You know, maybe they prefer mom puts them to bed for whatever reason. If you ask dad or another parent to step in, they're likely going to get a lot of pushback because they want mom to come back and do it. 
I actually will say, let's not necessarily give into that. Let's continue to expose the child to having the other parent do bedtime. They can find their own version of that bedtime routine to enjoy together. And over time, the child will start to learn that, oh, doing bedtime with the other parent is also really enjoyable and can go well. So I don't typically recommend that if, if mom is, has been the one that has historically done bedtime and mom is the one that the child prefers or responds better to, I will challenge that a little bit and say, let's see if we can incorporate the other parent a little bit more so that there's a better balance. So I would love to see two parents who are taking turns separately for bedtime. That kind of segues into my last question. So my husband and I used to alternate. So he would do a few days, I would do a few days, but the older she gets, you know, the more he thinks that she needs to be able to go to sleep on her own. So our, she's nine, she'll be 10 in a week and a half. And part of our bedtime routine has always been snuggling her until she's relaxed. And my husband would obviously prefer that we don't have to do that. And I wish I'd had a sleep coach when she was a baby, because this has just been part of her routine. Even when we moved her to a toddler bed, she, we, I had to sleep on the, in the, either in the toddler bed with her till she was asleep or on the floor in the room or something. So she has not transitioned well at all from, you know, crib to toddler bed to bed. So, I mean, she'll have a complete meltdown if, you know, we, we say she's not getting snuggles or there's a, it's a huge argument. I mean, she just won't go to bed. So my thought process is number one, I'm trying to avoid all the, the meltdowns and the struggles and this, you know, the, the anger and the, just all of that fighting. Mm -hmm. um, two, I enjoy snuggling her. And I, my, and my thought process is like when she's 16, she's not going to want me to snuggle her, right? This will, this will end eventually. But um, I guess, is it still okay to be snuggling her until she's relaxed at, you know, almost 10 years old? Yeah. I mean, I wish things had been different. I do. But right. since they weren't kind of, this is where we are now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think snuggling at bedtime is perfectly fine. Um, I'm going to, you know, clarify that a little bit and maybe give you a couple of examples. Um, I agree with you now that I have two teenage boys who don't necessarily want to snuggle anymore. I agree with you that like, you know, it's only a certain amount of time that you even have the opportunity to do that. So I do think that it is fine. I often will incorporate snuggle time in a bedtime routine for parents. Um, sometimes that can be very loose, like to your point, maybe you snuggle until you feel like she's relaxed and then you leave and then she sleeps okay throughout the night. If that last piece is happening, meaning once you leave the room, your child sleeps through the night, doesn't need you to come back several times, which is the situation we found ourselves in when they were little. Um, if that's happening, I see absolutely no problem with that. In fact, I would encourage it because it's just good bonding time with your child. I wanna give the alternative side to that to where maybe it might be something to reconsider. You know, I mentioned the term sleep props earlier and a sleep prop is really anything that a child starts to rely on in order for their sleep to happen. In older kids, I see this once kids move from a crib to a bed, this often develops just like what you described. It's the same thing that happened with one of my two sons where now all of a sudden they could not fall asleep without me present or laying next to them. And at first I thought that was okay, but then it snowballed into the night where I would sneak out. So my son would fall completely asleep and then I would sneak out and go back to my bed. Well, he would call for me three, four, five times a night. And every time he woke up and called for me, I had to start the process over. I would go back and lay in his bed until he fell asleep and then I could leave again. That was not sustainable. And that really took a toll on our family. So I would say, um, if you're snuggling at bedtime, everyone involved is enjoying it. It's it's wanted, you know, it's desired, and it's not causing additional sleep issues throughout the night. I'm a hundred percent supportive of that. If you find though that it is causing more, you know, challenges or troubles like that through the night, it might be something to reconsider. 
it doesn't mean that it has to fully go away. So for example, with some of my clients who maybe the parent was falling asleep with their child and they were having similar issues, like what I described, what we might do is we might say, okay, we're going to incorporate a set amount of snuggle time in the bedtime routine, let's say five minutes. So after you've you know gotten ready for bed and you've read your books, you get in bed, you have snuggle time for five minutes, but then at the end of five minutes, it has to end and you have to leave the room before your child is asleep. That's a good alternative to kind of get around that. Does that help? It, it, it does. When she was younger, she would wake up a few times a night and she couldn't go back to sleep without calling me. And I, but the last couple of years, she says she wakes up and can put herself back to sleep. So, okay. so that's good. And I used to have to stay there until she was completely asleep. But now we've, as she's gotten older, we've explained, you know, we're not staying until you're completely asleep. You need to fall asleep, be able to fall asleep without us in here. So we've transitioned to, you know, just until she's relaxed. So um, as pretty much as long as I have, have sung her this little lullaby that I wrote for her and snuggled her for a few minutes, she's, she's okay. So I think that's lovely. I think it's a really nice way to end the day for your child and for you. It's, you know, especially now that she's older and she's, I'm assuming not with you all day, right? right? You guys are separated as a family to come back at night and kind of reunite, have some bonding and connection time. I think it's wonderful. And if okay. you're happy with it and she's happy with it and it's not causing any extra challenges, I'd say, you know, enjoy it as long as it will last. <laughs> My yeah. son still likes me to come in at bedtime and kind of, I wouldn't call it snuggling anymore because he's a teenager, but like, we'll say our prayers together. And he likes me to just kind of hang out for a few minutes. And then I say good night and I leave. So we still have just a little bit of that happening, but, um, but that works well for us too. That's good. Awesome. So thanks so much for coming on. Where can we find out more about you and about what you do? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Um, my website is tendertransitionsmn.com. When you go there, you can find several things. I have free downloads. I have a parent sleep guide that can be downloaded. You can schedule a free discovery call with me and we can just chat a little bit about you know, what your concerns are and see if we can come up with some quick solutions, or maybe we need to do something a little more extensive. And for, if you have listeners with newborns, I actually am just launching a newborn um, sleep course that it's, it's a self-paced sleep course that helps you kind of figure out your newborn sleep. So you can find that on there as well. And then we do one-on-one sleep coaching too. That's awesome. So uh, you can find me at ithurtstomom.com and at ithurtstomom on Instagram and Facebook. And I'd also love to hear from you via email, ithurtstomom at gmail.com. Hope you have a blessed day. Thanks again so much for coming on, Leanne. Thank you, Lauren. Bye.